This episode of Impactually is generously supported by Am Shalom of Glencoe, Illinois. Hi, my name is Rabbi Stephen Stark Lowenstein from Congregation Am Shalom in Glencoe, Illinois. And it's my honor to be a sponsor for this podcast. You know, a wise teacher of the Holocaust once said that we can live three weeks without food, three days without water, but we can't even live three seconds without hope. The story, the human stories of the Holocaust are those that we must remember and never forget. Podcasts like these bring these stories to life. I hope that you listen carefully and then you, that you make the promise to never forget. Thanks for being with us. Enjoy the podcast. In Jewish tradition, the command to remember is absolute, but its obligation does not end with the cognitive act of memory. It must be connected to both meaning and action. We, for whom the memory is burned in our hearts and on our flesh, gather to pass the torch of memory to the next generation. We pass to you as well the fundamental lessons of Judaism. The memory must be accompanied by action of ethical and moral intent. This must be the foundation and the focus of your energies toward the creation of a better world. Sivigil, 2002 Seventy-six years ago, a war was waged in Europe, a brutal campaign based on power, hate, and misguided ideology. Millions lost precious sense of security, identity, and country. Jews were targets, and by the end of the war, just one-third of a once-vibrant, established, and diverse European Jewish community was left. Six million suffered inconceivable atrocities and genocide at the hands of the Nazis. Families were shattered. Faith was put to the test. The stories of survival are unimaginable. Those who bore witness to the Holocaust are few today, and not long from now, there will be no more survivors left. Who will testify to this painful past when all the witnesses are gone? Who will speak for them? Who will invite future generations to listen and understand the depths of human depravity as well as the extraordinary courage of the human spirit? And why should we care? For two Jewish women whose parents miraculously survived the Holocaust, storytelling as a means of remembering the tales of horror and heroism are part of their family legacies. While their stories of loss and survival are different, they're bonded in their work to preserve this historical period as active voices of the second generation. One, a Los Angeles teacher with degrees in psychology and educational counseling, always knew about the Holocaust, but only made a family connection after asking her mother, why don't I have grandparents? The other, a professor of comparative literature in Boston, spent her early childhood in post-war Germany, where stories of the Holocaust were ever-present, mostly, especially, at home. It's called Testimony, and our story starts here. I'm Brooke Bechtold, and this is Impactually.
Koner's parents, Hannah and Walter Koner, grew up in the village of Teplitz, Czechoslovakia, a German-speaking town of around 30,000 nestled into the Ore Mountains. It's a 20-minute drive to the border with Germany, and for centuries it's been known for its fashionable bohemian spa resort. It's said that Ludwig von Beethoven composed his Eighth Symphony in Teplitz, and Johann von Goethe, the poet, took up residence in Teplitz year after year for its healing springs and inspirational beauty. I'm the only child of two Holocaust survivors. For them, having a child after the Holocaust was very important. As a daughter of survivors, I'm a member of what's known as second generation which simply means that I am one generation after survivors. After my mother died, I felt compelled to tell my mother's story and develop voices of the generations. As an educator, I taught in public, private, and religious schools. I've been speaking publicly about my mother's story for over 30 years. Hannah Block, Julie's mother, was a bright, social young girl in love with her own dreams. Born in 1919, she adored her family, especially older brother Gottfried and her grandmother Burnham. The Block family lived in an apartment on the second floor of a large villa with linden trees lining their street and gooseberry bushes in the garden. In her 1984 autobiography, Hannah and Walter, A Love Story, she remembers a great deal of affection from her parents and to each other. Life was comfortable in this small and charming town in Czechoslovakia. Walter Koner was just a couple of years older than Hannah. They met as teenagers, and as teenagers do, they fell in love. They were engaged in early 1938, but that was a troubled time in Europe. Adolf Hitler was Chancellor of the German Third Reich. His influence and power were growing. His domestic and foreign policies were guided by the belief that the Aryan race, white, Christian, heterosexual, unblemished, and German, was superior to all others. He wished to cleanse his state of political enemies and those he considered genetically defective, like the Jews and Romani gypsies, the mentally ill and physically disabled. He espoused that Germany itself was biologically destined to expand eastward by military force. Territorial demands were growing, and the threat of war was palpable. That same spring, Hitler's Reich annexed Austria. A wave of street violence against Jews and their property followed in Vienna and other cities across Europe. By October, swastikas began to appear all over Teplitz. Walter knew it was time to leave. He managed to secure just one of a very limited number of Czech visas to the United States, where his brothers, working and living in Los Angeles in the film industry, agreed to eagerly sponsor him. But he couldn't bring Hannah. Walter's plan was to go, work, and raise enough money to bring her to America as soon as possible. But that didn't happen. Shortly after my father left for America, my mother went to Holland. And in Holland, uh, she worked there as a uh, maid for some family, uh, extended family members. And that's where she met Carl, her first husband. Uh, Six weeks after they were married, they were sent to um, the first camp, which was Westerbork. It's a transit camp in Holland. 
Considered humane by the Nazis, Westerbork was nothing more than a staging ground for mass deportation of Jews to the Theresienstadt ghetto in Czechoslovakia, or the Auschwitz, Sobobor, and Bergen-Belsen concentration camps in Poland and Germany. A week in Westerbork had six days, from Tuesday noon until Monday morning when the train with empty cattle cars arrived. On Monday night, lists with names of inmates to be deported were posted in the barracks. There were no farewells, no last embraces. On Tuesday morning, the train, usually 10 to 12 cattle cars, was filled. After the train had left, We would go from barracks to barracks to see who had been spared. In Westerbork, people were not killed. They died of disease or from hunger and from misery. Our commandant apparently did not want to dirty his hands. Anybody he wanted to get rid of, he sent on a transport to Auschwitz. Hannah Block. And from there, they were sent by train to Theresienstadt in Czechoslovakia. Uh, after six months in 1944, on Erev Rosh Hashanah, the, the Jew, Jewish New Year, um, Karl was deported to Auschwitz. One week later, um, on Erev Yom Kippur, our holiest day, uh, Hannah, my mother, um, arrived in Auschwitz. Uh, she didn't know it, but Carl had already been killed upon his arrival. Hannah's book details the horrifying events that happened to her in Theresienstadt, Auschwitz, and Mauthausen. Fear, degradation, humiliation, hunger, and cold were constant. The smell of death was everywhere. Not knowing what had happened to her family and friends, she almost welcomed death. Uh, because Hannah appeared young and strong, she was selected to live and work. Uh, she was slim due to malnourishment, and it was amazing that she could even be allowed to work, whatever that work was going to be. In the spring of 1945, she was sent on to the last transport from Auschwitz to Camp Mauthausen in Austria. When she was liberated from Mauthausen, she was, uh, we, were, we found out she weighed 73 pounds, initiated. How old was she? Um, when she was liberated, she was 25 years old. Carl Benjamin and Hannah's parents did not survive Auschwitz. Her grandmother Burnham died in Theresienstadt. Gottfried's fate was unknown. So did your parents talk about this when you were growing up? Yeah, they talked about it um, probably when I was about eight years old. I asked my mother, why don't I have grandparents? And she said they died a long time ago in Europe. And as I got older, she told me age appropriately, well, they were killed in the Holocaust. From that point, I was too scared to ask any more questions. Uh, When I was in religious school, probably about sixth grade, we were taught about the Holocaust by watching newsreels. And it was very frightening as sometimes I would watch these and think maybe these were my grandparents. My mother 
didn't talk to me unless I asked questions about the Holocaust. Ultimately, I learned about the details when she wrote her book. I also learned more about my mother's experiences when my parents took me on a trip to Europe when I was 29. We visited Theresienstadt in Czechoslovakia. Uh, later in 2000, I took my son and my husband to the same places. I mean, that must have been so hard. Well, when we were there in 1984, it was um, communist ruled. So it was uh, a very difficult, a different place than, of course, she had experienced all of Czechoslovakia at that time. And of course, um, going back to the camps, uh, people were saying they were denying it even existed. It took us a while to find it. Julie Koner's mother's story is one of remarkable survival, of living in ghettos and concentration camps, with vivid accounts of searching for safety and sense of normalcy at a time when no Jew was safe. In 1933, there were 357,000 Jewish Czechs living in Europe. By the end of the war, 95% of those lives were lost. Hannah was just one of about 17,000 who lived to see the end of the war. Jacob Stahl was born in Berlin in 1925, smack in the middle of Germany's Golden Twenties, the years between the end of World War I in 1918 and the Wall Street market crash of 1929, a period of growth and expansion in the humanities, sciences, technology, and higher education, cultural expressionism and experimentation were all the rage. But crushing foreign debt, post-war inflation, and a worldwide depression hit that country especially hard. Unemployment and food shortages forced many to leave, and Hilda's family was no exception. Her parents, Betty and Walter Jacobstall, moved Hilde and her brother Jo to Amsterdam, where they became close friends with the Franks, Otto and Edith, and their daughters, Anne and Margot. Hilda a German Jew, was 15 when Hitler invaded Holland. 
Her daughter Rita Goldberg recounts what and when she learned about her mother's history in her book *Motherland: Growing Up with the Holocaust*. The fact is that I always knew about it as far as back as I can remember, and I think this was one of the initiating um, impulses for writing the book. I was born so close after the war in 1949, um, and there were still a lot of people around who were survivors including especially uh, the Frank family, because Otto, I don't know how many people in your audience will have read the diary of Anna Frank. I'm finding that fewer and fewer people have read it as part of the school curriculum. The Diary of a Young Girl is one of the most celebrated and enduring books of the last century. Anne, a 13-year-old Dutch Jewish girl, chronicles two years of her family's life in a small Amsterdam attic hiding from the Nazis. After a tip from a Dutch informer, the Frank family was discovered and sent to concentration camps. Anne and her sister, Margot, died of typhus in the Bergen-Belsen concentration camp just weeks before liberation. Her mother died of starvation at Auschwitz. Only the patriarch, Otto, survived the camps, and with the help of a friend who had rescued Anne's writings, he published his daughter's work two years after the war had ended. But anyway, Otto Frank um, was the only survivor of his family, as you know. And uh, he, he, he moved to Basel, Switzerland, which is where I was born. And we used to see them a lot when I was an infant. Uh, my parents visited them practically every day because my mother was kind of a second or third daughter to Otto after he had lost his own. So all of us went back to Germany for two years. We spent two years in Frankfurt, Germany, which was a city that was being had been bombed heavily and was being rebuilt. I, I spoke German, so I could hear what people were saying. And when we were back in Europe, we saw a lot of the people who'd been involved with my mother throughout the war years and, and the people we knew in Holland and in Belgium and, and the Franks. You know, so we visited all of these people or they came to us. And so I always knew. Hilda Jacobstahl survived the Holocaust, not in a ghetto or a concentration camp, but as a member of the Dutch underground. She cheated death by staying one step ahead of the Gestapo, often in plain sight. To avoid getting caught, she was able to change everything about herself, from her hair color to her nationality, her language to her religion, anything necessary to stay alive. Your mother was in her mid-teens during the war, and she had unbridled confidence, taking risks right under the nose of the Gestapo. Can you share one or two of those stories with us? She was extremely gentle, It was, but, but she was underneath that tough. She had a lot of charm. And I think it was more that she was simply gutsy. Guts, guts was a big thing in our family, courage, and certainly she had that. And the Germans had invaded in the spring of 1940, um, May 10th exactly, when they invaded a lot of the Low Countries and also France. Uh, and this was a year later, and by then they were throwing kids out of school, first in Amsterdam and then elsewhere in the country. So her dream had been to become a pediatrician, but now she couldn't take, she couldn't go to high school or take college level courses. So she said, I'd really rather work with children than go to more school at this stage. And her mother agreed because it was more practical at the time to have a skill. And so she went to work at a daycare center. And then at 16, she was admitted to what would normally, it was normally a two-year course for 18-year-olds where you learn basically childcare and child psychology and some 
medicine, some first aid and so on. But instead, these, these young women got basically a nursing course. This little daycare center on the edge of the Jewish quarter had a, was founded by a Jewish organization and was open to all poor children in the neighborhood. But by the time this Nazi segregation started, there were only Jewish children there. And all this is leading to some of what happened to my mother. She was given a uniform. Hilda was now qualified to work with children, the most vulnerable in the best of times. But during Nazi occupation, Jewish infants, along with the elderly, the infirmed, and those with mental or physical challenges, stood little to no chance of survival. That uniform, on which was sewn the emblematic Jewish Star of David, gave Hilda a sense of urgency, responsibility, and according to Rita, power. So when they first got there, she was doing the usual work of the, of the nursery, and that work became more and more intense because the Nazis were emptying out orphanages and homes for disabled children, Jewish children, you know, Jewish homes, and bringing them to the daycare center where, from which they would be deported eventually. Um, and they were also arresting Jewish families who were uh, taken to a, collect, a collection point in Amsterdam that was a theater across the street from the daycare center. They uh, used the theater as a holding pen for these families. So if you can imagine any theater you've ever been to with the inadequate bathrooms and the seat being held there for weeks, that's what happened to them. And so my mother, with her nurse, uh, with her nurse's uniform, along with several other of the young trainees, was enlisted to go across uh, the street to the theater and ask mothers if they wanted to give up their infants to be rescued. Can you imagine being in that situation? And my mom and her friend, uh, and maybe one or two other people, never hesitated. So. They would go with laundry basket, with their nurse's uniform, which apparently the German soldiers always respected and came in handy on other occasions too. She would, they would go across with a laundry basket covered with a big white sheet uh, as if they were bringing laundry in and the soldiers never questioned that. And then they would go up to mothers who, who were um, there with their infants and ask them if they wanted them to try and rescue their infants. And I should say that at this time, as the arrests increased, there were many, many foundlings left on doorsteps, and they were the Nazis assumed they were, you know, abandoned by their families in the hope someone would take care of them. Because even though they didn't know the ultimate horror that awaited them, they knew it was something bad. But so sometimes the mothers would say no, they didn't want to be separated from their children, and they would be sent to Vesterbork, which was the Dutch way station for being sent further east to an unknown fate at that time. Uh, but others said, yes, take my child. I can't imagine how that felt. The girls would put the babies into their laundry baskets and cover them with these sheets and bring the children to apparent safety in the, in the um, daycare center, which originally was just a daycare center, but by now it had become a place with beds. And uh, the Nazis would come in every night and check on the kids to make sure they were all in their beds or cribs. But the young women who had started to cooperate with the underground, that was a Christian student underground uh, that was organized through the teacher's college next door, um, would put teddy bears and pillows to look like kids. And then they would take selected kids out into the garden and they would hand them over the wall to these Christian students, and the students would then smuggle them out to the north or south of Holland, which were more rural. 
but um, they survived, whereas the children who went to the camps uniformly did not. In the summer of 1943, working at the daycare was becoming too dangerous. According to Rita, the internal sources through the underground had said that Hilda was probably on the list or that the Germans were coming after the daycare center to, quote, clean it out. So do you want to hear about the escape? Or I do. I do. Yes. I do. I do. OK, well, so as I said, um, eventually her luck was running out. My grandparents said to my mom around that time in July that she should really separate from them and, and find her own hiding place. And they said, but I don't, she said, I don't want to go anywhere that you're not. And why me? And they said, because our neighbors have found a place for you in the countryside. So my mom t- did as instructed. This is where my book actually starts. She, uh, she had to take this trip that was totally against every law by now, every racial law, because the Jews had many, many impositions on at this time. So she took off her star. That was already against the law. She took a train against the law into the countryside against the law. She was put up in an inn against the law to meet the people she was supposed to stay with, who were a doctor and his wife, and they treated her very contemptuously. And she thought they were very suspect because at this point, as I found out later, uh, there was actually a, a poll, a reward per head of Jews if somebody wanted to turn in a Jew, money on it. And um, not very much either, seven guilders, I think it was, which even then was not a lot of money. But that's what a Jew was worth, you know. So um, she felt they would turn her in as soon as they didn't like something. So she sneaked out of an upper floor window. She managed to lower herself to the ground, maybe with a bed sheet, I don't know, and go to the train station. And she took a 5 a.m. train back to Amsterdam all against the law again, walked home because you couldn't take transport as a Jew. So she walked the 45 minutes home from the train station, which was patrolled by Gestapo. And she found that her parents had been arrested during the night and that the house was sealed up. And she was completely hysterical. This was still very early in the morning and went to some Gentile friends they had and they said, you're staying here. The family who had taken her in had arranged for her to meet her older brother, Yo, who she hadn't seen in over a year. Sometime during the course of the war, he managed to disappear into Belgium. He was part of a resistance network called the Dutch Paris, a clandestine courier service that rescued people from the Nazis by hiding them in neutral countries. So they agreed that they would meet in Maastricht, which is a town and that's on the border of Germany, Belgium, Germany and Belgium, even though it's still in Holland. And um, he was supposed to usher her into Belgium and they were supposed to take a boat across the Maas River or Meuse in the French in Belgium. That was the French speaking part of Belgium, um, which would have brought her to safety, kind of. And... Um, the boat, ne- Yo met her, but the boat never came. They never met the boat. And that was because Yo has a terrible sense of direction. I couldn't believe he was warrior taking people out through France when he couldn't really find his way to the end of the block. But so he missed the boat and they had to swim. It was midnight. The, the banks were patrolled with lights and dogs and so on. And they swam across, but midway he got a cramp and my mother had to support him and their belongings. They made it into Belgium, and I won't go into all the details of that. People might want to read the book, but it's really quite exciting. Am I running over time? Is it okay? Am I still all right? 
go right ahead. Um, she had to wait in a safe house in Brussels to get false papers. And she became overnight, um, instead of being a Jewish girl who was who was 18, she became a French-speaking Belgian. She was now Dutch Reformed, and she had bleached her hair blonde, which meant everybody thought she was much more mature than she really was. And she was purportedly a Dutch nurse who was escaping forced labor in Germany because that was starting to happen, that they were recruiting non-Jews for that. My mother, you know, had to learn all these prayers when she was a Dutch Reformed person. And then when the hiding place became unsafe, she became a Catholic and learned all that stuff. She was very musical, so she loved the singing parts. And a lot of that was passed to us. And she always loved Christmas. In much of Europe, Christmas is, unless you're an Orthodox Jew, is really a secular holiday, like our Thanksgiving. So she she got to know Christmas very well. And that when I later on in my town in New Jersey, when my Jewish friends were very shocked that my that we had Christmas and Hanukkah, I would always say, "Well, my mom is a Holocaust survivor, and she was helped by Christians. So what do you got to say for yourself? What do you say about that?" And that would shut them up. Yeah. So, and of course, she had many more adventures in Belgium, which all make fantastic stories. And involved several more escapes. And she was there for exactly a year until the liberation of Belgium by American troops um, in August of 1944. After the war, hundreds of thousands of refugees and former inmates of the Nazi concentration camps were placed in displaced persons camps in Germany, Austria, and Italy. These were established by the Allied forces to provide urgent basic necessities for survivors. One was set up near the Bergen-Belsen concentration camp, where Hilda worked as a member of the British Red Cross. So they got a call that there was this camp called Bergen-Belsen in North Germany near Bremen and Hanover. Uh, and they, the British had just liberated it, and they were completely overwhelmed by the number of dead and dying. And, and they sent out all points calls to all the medical personnel around. So my mom found herself in an ambulance driving through the front lines and arrived a week after the liberation. Yeah. And then later on, he, th- th- this is what happened, though. He, at the time, my mother, my mother, by the way, actually discovered the du- what was called the Dutch girls' bunk, uh, she because she she was trying to find her own parents at Belson, and she was the only woman allowed into the horror camp, as the British called the Jewish areas, because people were just starving to, at death and ridden with typhus, um, and dying by the droves in droves, and um, she didn't find her parents, but she learned from Dutch girls who had survived to that point that Anna and Margot had been in one of the bunks and had died just not long ago, a few weeks before liberation. And when she t- got her first leave from the British to go visit, go back to Amsterdam, she met Otto on the street because they were both staying with friends on the same street, Gentile friends. In, in Otto's case, it was Meep from the diary, and in my mother's case, with the Scholters who had saved her before. And she thought, and she told him that her daughter, his daughters had died. And he may have known, I'm not sure how... I don't know whether my mother by then or shortly after did find out about the gassing of her own parents. And Otto may or may not have known that because the Dutch community tended to communicate too. Um, I think she heard through the Red Cross actually sometime later. But 
they knew their par- that their families were dead, and that's when they made this very close bond. Because my mother even looked like Margot and was almost the identical age by two days. Um, but he had heard from some of the other Dutch survivors just a day or two before she told him about the survival, I mean, the death of uh, Anna and Margot. And then he showed her the diary. He said, I don't know what to do with this. I feel I should publish it, but what do you think? And my mom said, I think you should. We're going to have to remember this. They both wanted to do something in the world that would make a difference. And Otto's way was by keeping all the wounds on his heart open. But he, he, uh, he wanted to get the word out that so this would never happen again. A year after Hilda arrived in Bergen-Belsen, she met a young Jewish doctor named Max Goldberg. Max was born and raised in Switzerland by Polish immigrant parents, a fact that denied him Swiss citizenship. But he wasn't Polish either, so for all intents and purposes, he was a statesless Jew. According to Rita, despite being a top medical student, his legal status denied him jobs that were offered to his Swiss classmates. So, by his birthright, he was made a colonel in the Polish army and spent a year treating soldiers at a Polish camp. Then a position replacing an American doctor at Bergen-Belsen opened up. He was transferred there a year after Hilda arrived, and a year after that, they married in Switzerland. Eventually, they made their way to the United States of America. Both of my parents were fabulous. They really were. It's, uh, um, I keep thinking of how adventurous they were and how my father especially had such an incredible thirst for life. You know, he was always planning new adventures for us. And he adored coming to America. And my mother continued when she came to America to work with small children and eventually founded this incredible daycare center, the mother of all daycare centers, that was for free at first for underprivileged kids and has rescued many, many families for generations. It still exists. And she eventually wrote the daycare standards for the state of New Jersey. Two tales of survival, heroism, and fate. But you're probably wondering what happened to Hannah and where Walter fits into this narrative. When we last left off, she was newly liberated, but completely alone. Just months prior to the bombing of Pearl Harbor, Walter, a foreign national, was drafted into the American Army and used as a translator at U.S. prisoner of war camps. After the Allied forces landed at Normandy, Walter was sent to Europe, first to London, then Normandy, and then Luxembourg. It was there that he learned about the true extent of the atrocities at the Nazi concentration camps. I'll let Julie take it from there. So, um, American soldiers liberated Mauthausen, and um, they asked all of the survivors, is there anybody we can contact for you? And my mother said, yes, perhaps my old fiancé would like to know that I survived. And he said, well, I'd be happy to send him a note. She gave him a note and an address that simply said, Mr. Walter Koner, USA, California, Sunset Boulevard, with no address because she couldn't remember the address. And he said, well, do the best I can. Well, that letter uh, ended up coming to what was my uncle, his uh, office. He then took it, put it in another envelope and sent it to my father, who was stationed at Radio Luxembourg. And my father received it. And then he went on a search through Europe and started, of course, in Czechoslovakia, 
went to Prague. Well, first, I think, went to Teplitz, his, their hometown. And of course, no one was there. Um, went then to Prague and happened to see my uncle, my mother's brother, who was the only other survivor of the family. And he said, well, perhaps he didn't know my mom was alive, but perhaps go to, uh, to Holland. Maybe she's there. Maybe she's looking for some of Carl's family. Gottfried was alive and Hannah was indeed in Amsterdam. After an emotional reunion, she and Walter were married in Luxembourg in October of 1945. In 1946, they moved to Los Angeles, and 10 years later, Hannah gave birth to Julie, their only child. In 1953, Hannah was featured on one of only, if not the first of its kind, American reality documentary shows, This Is Your Life. So your mom was featured on the popular 1950s hit television show, This Is Your Life. Why was that so transformative at the time? Well, This Is Your Life was a program developed by Ralph Edwards. Um, It was the most popular program in the early days of television. It featured guests who were mainly celebrities or notables. And they would tell their life stories by surprising the person with onstage visits from people of their past. Ralph Edwards liked to feature people who had accomplishments that stood out. The fact that my mother had survived the Holocaust, of course, was an enormous accomplishment. Telling the story of the Holocaust on this popular TV show educated people who have otherwise not known about this dark time in recent history. While the program was meant to be entertaining, they did a lot of research. And through that research, reunited Hannah with her brother, the sergeant who liberated my mom's camp, and um, also a friend, Eva, who was in all four camps with my mom and other people. This was done eight years after the war. People weren't talking about Holocaust in their homes, let alone on national television. It was a groundbreaking event. That took some serious courage, to your points, to talk about the Holocaust on national television when this is a television show all about celebrities. Right, right. And it had, uh, many people say, a very glitzy, glamoury tone. But it was done that way to make it palatable for the audience because Holocaust, the word Holocaust, of course, didn't even exist at that time. We have a link to this episode of This Is Your Life in our show notes and encourage you to watch it. It's absolutely fascinating. Your parents and your uncle wrote a book called Hannah and Walter, A Love Story, as a means to document the hardships and the providence of your parents' relationship. Then after your mom died in 1990, you founded the nonprofit Voices of the Generations. Tell us about that. What's the mission, and why is it so important not only to you personally, but to global audiences as well? The idea of the murder of six million is impossible to absorb and fathom. Almost everyone has a family. Voices of the Generation's mission is to bring the historical context of the Holocaust to people by telling the story of one woman, one family. It makes the loss more personal. 
I developed Voices of the Generations to educate people with a unique and personal approach. Many listeners may have difficult stories of their own, and this approach frees them to be able to share their own story. Globally, there's a rise in hatred, intolerance, anti-Semitism, and Holocaust denial. One way to reverse this trend is to get out in front of people and tell my story. Voices of the Generations was set up as a nonprofit educational organization to supplement standardized Holocaust education in public and private schools. Even as recently as the past few weeks, we have seen and experienced a hatred in our country, not that different from Nazi Germany. According to the New York Times, anti-Semitism is indeed on the rise. In 2019, the Anti-Defamation League reported more than 2,100 anti-Semitic incidents in the United States alone, a 12% jump and the most in any year since it began tracking them four decades ago. The importance of listening to these stories grows over time. Despite the memories that continue to haunt them, many have spoken up out of fear that without these stories, the world will forget the horrors of the Holocaust and history will repeat itself. Accounts like these are not just an anthropological discovery. They're truths that should be used to defend our moral responsibility to one another to appreciate the lessons that history teaches us, and to be able to think critically about the realities of racism. These stories are not told for sympathy. They're told as an outcome that allows us to see each other as equals and respect one another. As famed Holocaust survivor and author Elie Wiesel once said, the opposite of love is not hate, it's indifference. And the opposite of life is not death, it's indifference. Silence is indifference. Many of the second, third, and fourth generation of Holocaust survivors are now sharing their experiences with the memories they've inherited. And for descendants like Rita, who doesn't remember a time she was not aware of the Holocaust, it's a legacy being passed down as stories of regeneration, stories of building an identity in the shadow of oftentimes blurred backgrounds, in the hopes that something bigger comes to light. It's not about being defined by a history they did not experience themselves. It's about preserving the legacy of past truths and sounding the alarm to future generations. As part of Rita's own journey to make sense of being a second-generation Holocaust survivor, back in 2014, she wrote her book, Motherland, Growing Up with the Holocaust. She travels the world narrating her mother's story and sharing glimpses into what it was like growing up feeling measured against, as she once said in an interview, our grandparents' martyrdom on the one hand and our parents' exceptional courage on the other. We were ashamed even to acknowledge anger or anxiety. Those emotions felt somehow unworthy. Well, I think it gave us all a lot to live up to, even though my mom would always say, look, I'm helpless before. It was history. It's not me. She never felt she was a heroine particularly. No heroine ever feels like a heroine or a hero. That's what defines them. 
none of the people who saved my mother, you know, would have called themselves that or did. I mean, I had conversations with them when they were still alive. Absolutely not. They just said it, it was, there was no choice. That's what they said. We had to do this. It wasn't a question, you know. We all felt we had to be terribly brave. And sometimes it got in the way of your actual feelings. Um, I spent my whole life trying to be exemplary, which is really exhausting, you know, and not possible. Um, and I also felt I had to fight all the time, fight all the injustices of the world. But I, had, I still do it. I have no choice about it. And I feel completely ineffectual, which I have always, also always felt. And sometimes it got me into a lot of trouble, you know, too. But um, there wasn't really a choice about it. What do you hope will come of preserving these stories? And what do you think those of us today can learn from the experiences of people like your mom? Well, what I'm hoping people can learn and what I say to my young students in the schools is you can always stand up. You can always stand up. Do not be a bystander. That's now become a big cliche. But And I ask them if they've experienced bullying or seen bullying in the schools and uh, and I ask them, can they think what they could do in that situation instead of just letting it happen? And if they are being bullied, how can they stand up too? And I said, I would urge you to fight, but I don't mean fighting violently. I mean fighting with words and with your own instincts and with courage. And I, and I tell them the, 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 the two Jewish sayings that are quite germane. One of them is, to save one person is to save the world. And as I said to them, saving one person is already a tall order, but you can save a bit of a person and part of a world, even in your own environment. You can do that. Well, my mother feared that the memory of the Holocaust would be forgotten. During their book tour, an interviewer said to my mom, how do you feel when someone says the Holocaust did not exist? And she replied, this is the reason why I had to write my side of the story. If we don't put it down and tell it to our children, the day may come when people may say it never happened. Um, that time is now. Others may not talk about it because it's too painful and repressed. They don't want to be reminded of the past. Some people who never spoke before are now realizing that their story must be told. Impactually is created and produced in cooperation with HUM Productions. Our web address is hum, H-U-M-M, productions.com. Financial support for the show is generously provided by JLB Images. We'd like to extend our sincerest thanks to our guests, Julie Koner and Dr. Rita Goldberg. For links to their books, Hannah and Walter, A Love Story, and Motherland, Growing Up with the Holocaust, as well as links to Voices of the Generations and other Holocaust education resources, we have them for you in our show notes. Lastly, there are photos of these incredible women and their families in our show notes, and we hope you check them out. Special thanks to Rabbi Stephen Stark Lowenstein of Congregation Am Shalom in Glencoe, Illinois, and Joshua Davis for providing his song, Ose Shalom, A Prayer for Peace, for this episode. Josh was a contestant finishing third on NBC's The Voice, Season 8. We have a video of him performing Ose at Interlochen Center for the Arts on our website, homeproductions.com, in addition to a link to his website. 
His music is available on all major streaming platforms. And our team, Christine Murdoch, Senior Producer and Editor. Sound Engineering by Matt Wheeler. Music Curation by L. Lively of Crooked Tree Creative. James Nash, Guest Narrator. Richard Cassis of Spark Inc. for Digital Artwork and Branding. Photography by Charles Cherney and Andrew Sachs for our original music. Subscribe and listen to us on iTunes, Spotify, Pandora, Radio Public, or wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We really appreciate it as it helps others find us too. We'd love to hear from you, so send us an email or find us on social media. Pitch us ideas about people who you think should be on our show. Maybe it's even you. We'll be back soon with another extraordinary episode. Everyone has a story. Share. I'm Brooke Bechtold. Thanks for listening.